Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. This is the show that brings you a curated selection of the essential stories of the week. Our aim is to feed your curiosity. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper, in London. And I'm Chelsea White in Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the show. This week, we also welcome back reporter Carissa Wong. Hi, Carissa. Hiya. Now, last week, we did say that it was the last chance to get the early bird tickets for New Scientist Live, but actually, there is one more chance. Woohoo! Woohoo! Yeah, yeah um, it's the world's greatest science and technology show. We always say that, but it is. And it's online and in person in London from October the 7th to the 9th. And the early bird offer closes on Sunday the 25th of September. So go and get your tickets. Find out more at newscientist.com slash live. And this really is the last chance, right? It, it is, it is. Now, coming up on the show this week, we're going to hear about the effect of climate change in the US, uh, in particular on the West Coast. And we're discussing some really intriguing new work on centenarians who have Alzheimer's, but they don't have the cognitive symptoms of it. We've also got a life form of the week that I'm really looking forward to. And mm. a great interview with David Finnegan. He's a playwright who works on the climate crisis. Now... We're all massive fans of Mary Shelley here, aren't we? I mean, obviously. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And we love stories about creating artificial life. So, Chris, you've got this amazing story about a self-replicating protein factory. So what, what is going on? Yeah, so after decades of trying, scientists have finally got tiny protein-making factories from bacterial cells called ribosomes to replicate themselves outside of cells. And ribosomes are where the genetic code gets translated into proteins, proteins being a crucial component of life. One scientist I spoke to said it's a huge milestone in building artificial cells, and it could even help us understand the origins of life. It's amazing, isn't it? Because what like ribosomes are these 
extraordinary pieces of nano machinery, like really complex factories. So how on earth do you manage to get them to self-replicate? Well, it's by spending seven years slowly optimising a reaction mixture in a test tube. <laughs> yeah, so ribosome self-replication is really complex and it involves around 200 types of molecules coming together in just the right way. Yeah. So the researchers put DNA coding for ribosome components, an RNA-producing enzyme, along with ribosomes derived from E. coli cells into a test tube. And then to that, they added a tweaked version of the liquid or cytoplasm extracted from E. coli cells. Yeah. They then used an artificial intelligence, which helped guide them to find the precise molecular cocktail that would kickstart ribosome self-replication. And the winning formula enabled ribosomes to produce new ones within three hours. Wow. You can imagine just how complicated it must be to assemble this machinery and normally that's controlled by the nucleus isn't it so i guess what they've done is like get those instructions and just literally get the like the list of instructions on dna and chuck that list in to the mix mm -hmm. and somehow that's got it all working um so what are they just replicating away now <laughs> yeah well there's no need to worry about ribosome overlords uh, and they're, they're not still replicating but oh, yeah. um okay Actually, all the researchers really know is that the original ribosomes generated another ribosome generation. So it's unclear whether those ribosome children mm. then had ribosome grandchildren <laughs> or really how many generations there were in total. And that's because there's some limits to the researchers' ribosome detection tools. But they're working to work out how to resolve this. So I guess like the, the reason people are so excited about this is that ribosomes are these really key parts of the cell they do part of the metabolism and if we can make them then that's a that's why we're talking about making artificial life isn't it mm -hmm. yeah that's exactly right so if we can build ribosomes from scratch which are such a key component of cells and they're able to replicate themselves it really overcomes one of the key stumbling blocks for making self-replicating artificial cells and learning to create artificial cells could help us develop new research tools and therapies because it will give us new insights into how cells work and so how to manipulate them. Yeah, and, and the, the other really exciting thing is we don't know how ribosomes first came together in the first place, like how they arose. So if you can start to figure that out, you might start getting clues about how life got going. Yeah, that's a really cool part of this work. Mm. So for the earliest life to get going, some researchers think ribosomes must have been able to assemble and replicate even before there were cells. Right. So, yeah, studying these self-replicating ribosomes could help us unpick what exactly happened when life began. OK, thanks, Chris. So we'll, we're going to put a link to that story in the show notes. OK, Rowan, uh, you've been away recently, haven't you? So this next segment looks a little bit like uh, what I did on my holiday segment. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, actually it is. It, it, it literally is that. Although I didn't do this all the time. I'm walking on Porthcressa Beach on St Mary's Island in the Isles of Scilly. It's an absolutely sensational, beautiful beach. And it's low tide and we're just heading out to this great big sort of natural rock pool. And we're hoping to find an animal I've been looking for and reading about and learning about for years, and I'm hoping to see one here. 
All right, Scott, what have we got? So here we've got a solar-powered sea slug, or Elysia viridis is its scientific name. Uh, they're one of the um, more special creatures that we find on our rock pool safaris. And they exclusively live, uh, the ones on Scilly at least anyway, exclusively live on uh, this species of algae, which is called green sponge finger or codium. And uh, yeah, just, I'm just trying to get a little grip on this one here so we can see it. So solar-powered sea slugs, Hence the name, have a, an amazing biology and they have specially adapted mouth parts and when they're feeding on the algae in which, which they live on and they lay their eggs on, they have their whole life cycle on this green sponge finger. When they're feeding on it, they have specially adapted mouth parts and they can dissect the chloroplasts out of the cells of the plant and they ingest these chloroplasts undamaged, store them in their own body and use the chloroplasts to photosynthesize as a method of gaining energy. Amazing. Look at that, you can see it's little antenna or horns. Yeah, little antenna. There's gorgeous Beautiful. iridescent blue speckles all over the body. And right down the middle there, down this, that central divide, that little flap down the middle. Yeah. When they're, when they're not being handled, when they're not being disturbed by the likes of us, they will open up that central flap. And it's almost like a leaf inside. It has like a central vein, and little veins coming off. It's normally slightly black, brighter green than the rest of the animal and uh, that's the main area where they store all those chloroplasts and when they're they're basking that's where they'll, they'll open that back flap up into the sunlight and utilize the sun's energy to photosynthesize essentially stealing the photosynthesis ability off the plant and using it for its own benefit isn't that amazing yeah that is incredible <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> solar powered animals Oh, I was, you can tell I was so thrilled to find these things. And thank you to Scott and Samaya of Silly Rockpool Safaris. I didn't know we had a species of this solar-powered slug in Europe, and I thought they were just in the US and Japan. So, yeah, I was very happy to find them. They're so cool. Uh, but I'm curious, why are you so excited about them? <laughs> yeah, well, my, my daughter said they were boring. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, they're an amazing example of symbiosis. And uh, you know, it's just startling to find, you know, an example of plants and animals that separated, you know, more than a billion years ago on the on the evolutionary tree to find them together so intimately. Yeah. Uh, so it's just a super cool animal. Mm, I'm just wondering, though, like, how do those chloroplasts that the slugs steal from the seaweed, how do they stay alive? Yeah, well, it's like you're talking about the ribosomes. How do you make a ribosome replicate outside of the cell? Well, with these is the slug supports the chloroplasts. So there's some ideas that people think that it's got some algal DNA in the slug genome that it uses to sort of nurture the chloroplasts. And apparently the slugs can survive through photosynthesis for like up to a year um, oh, wow. without eating. So they really do work like as, um, as solar panels. Okay, let's take a quick break to tell you some more about New Scientist Live. Yes, it is the world's greatest festival of science and technology. It's a fantastic event and it's returning to London this year on the 7th to the 9th of October. There's so many great speakers. Um, one I'm looking forward to is Simon Baron Cohen. So he's got this really bold new theory about what's driven human progress over the last sort of 70 to 100,000 years. And it's an idea he's developed through his work on autism. And it's really interesting. It could really change the way we think of sort of non-neurotypical people. So really looking forward to that. One that caught my eye is Adam Rutherford's talk on the dark history and troubling present of eugenics. That'll be interesting. 
Yeah, it will. He's a great speaker. That's going to be a good talk as well. Uh, loads more. Do go to newscientist.com slash live to book your tickets. It's all unmissable. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, it's wildfire news time. Uh, Chelsea, you're on the West Coast. How is it? Yeah, I'm in Oregon uh, and fire season has been upon us for some time. Uh, Mm. But this weekend we woke up again to yellow skies and an orange sun. You know, it's always so freaky when that happens. You don't really get used to it. You sort of get this drop in your stomach like, oh, how bad are things going to get today? You know? Yeah. Um, So we had this really strange weather pattern that trapped the smoke over us for a few days And then we've had this really long period of drought that has dried out all the plants around here, which are exactly the conditions we had two years ago when the fires were forcing evacuations all around me. You know, fortunately, this weekend, we just saw smoke. But I know that there are a lot of people up and down the West Coast that are facing really difficult fires right now. So it's been it's been a time. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really really bad and concerning. And I know, you know, you hear people saying wildfires are natural. But look, We do know from research that these fires are becoming even more common, right? Unfortunately, that is the case. And specifically in California, you know, we had a story this week from our environment reporter, James Sinine, who talked with researchers that are looking into what they call extreme wildfires. What's an extreme wildfire? Because like if you're, you know, if one's coming to your house, that's pretty extreme. But is there, what's an extreme one? (laughs) Yeah, they all seem pretty extreme. But the definition here is a wildfire that grows 10,000 acres in a single day. So these are really fast-moving, really fast-burning fires, yeah. What, and these are also expected to be on the increase? Yeah, they are. Uh. Um, Some climate researchers trained machine learning modules with data from 18,000 fire days between 2003 and 2020. And so then they use those to test how warmer temperatures that we might see with climate change and the drier fuel that comes from these sort of scorching summers will affect the risk of extreme fires. And they found that even with climate change staying under two degrees of warming by the end of the century, extreme wildfire days in California will increase by 57 percent by 2050. Like, uh, and, that, and as we know, that's not even the lowest emission scenario, is it? Because two degrees of right. warming... You know, I know that's above the Paris Agreement of 1.5, but it's probably we've probably missed 1.5, as we've said on the podcast um, a few times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, two degrees of warming is a pretty plausible scenario. And if for some reason we, you know, sort of don't get our act together as a world and we end up Mm. with even more than two degrees of warming, 
these extreme wildfire days in California would increase by 80% by 2050. And by the end of the century, they would increase 175%, which is just like, I can't even imagine that. No. And so look, I, I, it's so that is a, such a terrifying prospect. I wanted to end mm-hmm. by talking about, about a paper that just came out in the journal Dual. Uh, that's the energy unit Dual. This paper shows that if you decarbonize our energy supply globally, it could save five to 15 trillion dollars, which is, yeah, I mean, because you do hear basically apologists for fossil fuel saying that the transition to clean energy is going to be too expensive. You hear politicians say that quite a lot. Um, But this paper shows just how completely backwards that is. A transition to clean energy can save trillions and trillions of dollars. Yeah, it could also save the the terror and the loss of homes and all of the things we're living through out here too. So Mm -hmm. I say we go for it. (laughs) Now for a really interesting finding about Alzheimer's disease and centenarians. These are people who live to be over 100 years old. Yeah, this was a really interesting study. So the study of centenarians found that there was no correlation in these people between diminished cognition and accumulation of plaques in the brain. And these are the plaques that are normally associated with Alzheimer's. Yeah, it's so strange, isn't it? So these amyloid plaques have been considered one of the most promising areas for Alzheimer's research because they're usually found in the brains of people who develop the disease, but not in people who die at similar ages of other causes. So there was this big push to understand, you know, maybe these are a cause of Alzheimer's and we should understand what they are. Uh, Yeah, except, you know, there has been some evidence recently that, that it might not be the case. Right. So how does this new study add to that? Okay, so the researchers analysed the brains of more than 2,000 people who died between the ages of 16 and 103 and basically scored the severity of the plaques that were seen in their brains. Um, So that includes uh, these amyloid plaques, but also tangles of another protein called tau, plus a mix of the two called neuritic plaques. And that's when clumps of amyloid form around the neurons containing these tau tangles. They also examined the brains of 85 centenarians who who got past 100, who died between the ages of 100 and 111. um, And they were part of this 100 plus cohort, which is a a medical research initiative in the Netherlands. And that includes tests of cognition. And so what did they find? What they found was that the amyloid plaques and towel tangles accumulate less in the brains of centenarians than in younger people with Alzheimer's. So that's weird. But then... Even more interesting is that even in centenarians who did have more of the brain changes that you you associate with Alzheimer's, like the physical changes, that didn't necessarily correlate with reduced cognition. So their brains look like they should have the symptoms of Alzheimer's, but they don't have the dementia we usually see. Is that right? That's really fascinating. (laughs) I mean, it does really go back to that question of whether these plaques are driving the disease or whether they might be related to some other age-related process that is completely distinct from Alzheimer's. Yeah, um, they suggest also it could be related to genetics. Like centenarians might not be prone to the inflammation in the brain that we see with Alzheimer's, and lots of people think it's all about inflammation. So that is when the immune system attacks the plaques, killing neurons in the process. And it actually reminds me of a study I wrote about once that sequenced the genomes of a whole load of centenarians and found that 
they actually had a load of you know nasty gene variants in their genomes, like genes associated with disease, like known risk factors. And the oh. researchers had, yeah, that, well, the researchers imagined before they sequenced the thing that that the centenarians would be would have a nice clean genomes and not have these nasty gene variants. Yeah, but I would have instead, thought that too. <laughs> yeah, but what what it seems instead is that they have them, but tolerate the effects or can override the effects of these of these nasty gene variants. So, yeah, some really interesting stuff going on with centenarians. Okay, we've got an interview from the Edinburgh Fringe now. Our feature editor, Abby Beale, was there. Um, very lucky, Abby. And she met with uh, Australian playwright David Finnegan. So he's been making art and plays about climate change for years now. And his latest piece is You're Safe Till 2024, Deep History. Uh, and that looks at the 75,000-year history our impact on the environment has had, but looks at it from the lens of the 2019 Australian bushfires. And, you know, those were the, their worst in history fires. Abby asked him first about the new show. So the show is a one person show that does two things. In late 2019, I was sitting down to write a big script about deep history and the course of human history over the last 75,000 years. So I sat down to write this story about this one character who is reincarnated in different eras of history and how the world changes and how these key turning points in human history may have looked at the time. And I hoped that by writing that deep history narrative, I could kind of see some lessons for us here and now in this moment. But while I was writing that story at the very end of 2019, the last three days of the, of the decade, the fires in Australia escalated. And I'm from Ngunnawal country in the southeast of Australia. My friends and family were all very much on the front line of those fires. And so while I was writing this big deep time narrative, I was also hour by hour getting this story of what was happening to my friends and my, my parents as they kind of were facing the oncoming smoke and fires. And those two stories ended up colliding in a really unexpected way while I was trying to write this piece. So you've been making art or theatre about climate change for 20 years now. That's right. So what has changed since then in terms of the climate art? <laughs> well, it's funny, back in the early 2000s and mid-2000s, I think climate art was a thing. You know, in the 90s and the 2000s, that was the era when uh, when the word cli-fi emerged, <laughs> um, that strange genre title. That was, yeah, there was a point in that moment where climate change... You know, global warming, the greenhouse effect was on the horizon and scientists were talking about it, policymakers were talking about it. And so to a degree, it was a subject matter that you could write about as an artist. You could make a show about it. What's really changed, I think, in the last two decades has been that our understanding of climate and the impact of climate change has just grown and grown to the point where I would say that there really isn't even such a thing as climate art anymore because at this point, all art is climate art. It's moved from being a subject to being the the context of all of the work that we make and the world that we live in. You know, if climate is touching everything, then is it possible to make a work that's not about the climate in some way? So, you know, here at the Edinburgh Fringe is 3,200 shows or whatever. I'd say every single one of them, you could apply a lens of climate to that show, even if they never mention the word. Um, Mackenzie Walk has this great line where he says, all fiction is Anthropocene fiction. Some of it just doesn't know it yet. Um, and I think, you know, we, we look back at work 
from the Industrial Revolution. We look at the work of Charles Dickens, Jane Austen, and we read those through the lens of the historical period they were in. Charles Dickens never used the words industrial revolution, but we sort of still see him as an artist of that of that nature. I think the same applies to all of us now. People in a hundred years will look back and say, oh, that was work in the 2020s. That was the work of the climate era. Those, those were cl all climate works. In that way, I don't think, um, <laughs> I think climate art has just become this strange amorphous thing. So I still make work that's very much informed by science and research. And that's, you know, where perhaps traditionally we understood the climate conversation to sit in the world of research, perhaps in the world of policy too. But in the last particularly five to 10 years, I think we've really kind of opened up our understanding of climate. And now we understand that climate is obviously it touches all of these existing inequalities. And so any work that's about a First Nations issue or land rights or gender, these are all kind of climate stories in their own way. What's, what's changed is I'm no longer making work that's in any way unique. I'm now just one of this huge <laughs> strand, a, a single strand in this massive tapestry of artists talking about the world. I don't kind of operate from a space of anger or, or grief. I'm so fascinated by what's happening. Like it's, it's scary, it's disorienting, and it's absolutely um, appalling at times to sort of see the way that we're sleepwalking into, into sort of one shock after another. A huge part of it is it's just incredible. Like, what a moment in the Earth's history to be alive during. We're seeing things that no other organism in the history of the planet has seen. And we have the capacity to kind of get a glimmer of what it all means. The news is not good a lot of the time, but just to sort of be alive in this moment, it's just, it's extraordinary. And so it's a delight to get to sort of point to some of the things that I'm finding so curious and interesting. Yeah, I'm very grateful for the chance to get to tell some of these stories because I find them fascinating. That was David Finnegan on Writing About Climate. And that new show, You're Safe Till 2024 Deep History, is on in London, if you missed it in Edinburgh, from the end of this month. And we'll put a link in the show notes. But look, what really struck me there was his attitude to writing about the climate crisis. It was really refreshing. And I actually feel really inspired by that attitude. And that's it for this week. Thanks, Carissa, for joining us. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, go to newscientist.com slash live for those last early bird tickets to New Scientist Live. See you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,